Almighty God, we do thank you on this Easter morning for your son, Jesus, and for his humility and love demonstrated through his suffering on the cross. Today we celebrate his resurrection, though we still remember and grieve our sins and your wrath being laid on him. Our hearts are thankful that he paid for our sins, that he set us free, and that he opened for us the gate of life everlasting. God, may our souls cry out, hallelujah, praise and honor unto thee, just as we just sang. This morning, we do think of and pray for the families and friends of our dear sisters, Miriam, Marge, and Marilyn. We pray for your comfort. And we pray that as these loved ones grieve, um, that there would also be rejoicing, knowing that these sisters in Christ are home with you, uh, raised to life again. God, we also just want to thank you so much for bringing the Mexico team back safely and for their time serving the Ramirez Flores family there. Um, we pray for that family, and we also pray for each of the students and staffers that served. We know that you were at work in each of their hearts and lives as they served, and so we pray for you to continue that good work in them. And God, as we continue to just think beyond our own community, we pray this morning again for the people of Ukraine and Russia. We pray for your intervention and especially for your protection of innocent lives. And God, there are so many other hard things going on in the world around us. We each think of people who are being persecuted or who are suffering injustice or who are in poverty, those who are facing emotional or physical pain. Please hear our heart's cries for you to bring peace and reconciliation and comfort in those places. As we continue our worship this morning, God, may we have open minds and hearts to your spirit's leading and conviction. Thank you so, so much, not only for the chance to, to come together to worship, but also time to connect as a community, to simply be together and to care for one another. Please bind us together on this Easter morning and help us to love each other well. Um, and we pray all this in your son's powerful name. Amen. Well, as just as we prepare to hear the word preached this morning, I'm going to read today's scripture passage from the International Children's Bible. Um, so you can just listen while I read, and then um, we'll invite Eugene up to, to walk us through this story. The day after the Sabbath day, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought, bought some sweet-smelling spices to put on Jesus' body. Very early on that day, the first day of the week, the women were on their way to the tomb. It was soon after sunrise. They said to each other, there is a large stone covering the entrance of the tomb. Who will move the stone for us? Then the women looked and saw that the stone was already moved. The stone was very large, but it was moved away from the entrance. The women entered the tomb and saw a young man wearing a white robe. He was sitting on the right side, and the women were afraid. But the man said, don't be afraid. You are looking for Jesus from Nazareth, the one who was killed on a cross. He has risen from death. He is not here. Look, here is the place they laid him. 
Now go and tell his followers and Peter, Jesus is going into Galilee. He will be there before you. You will see him there as he told you before. The women were confused and shaking with fear. They left the tomb and ran away. They did not tell anyone about what happened because they were afraid. So I'll invite Eugene up now. Thank you, Christine. Would you all bow with me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word, both in the scriptures as well as um, the encouraging testimony that we're going to be hearing later today. God, we thank you for speaking to us. And we ask that you would open our ears to hear what you have to say to us today, soften our hearts, and help us to receive all that you are for us this Easter morning. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So brothers and sisters, as we begin our time in God's word, I'd like to lead us in the Easter greeting that we practiced at the start of our service. I'll play the part of leader, and you brothers and sisters can play the part of people, and then we'll all be everyone together, okay? <laughs> Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. So this is the greeting script that churches have used every Easter for many generations. And it's a good script. It's solid. It captures the good news that we celebrate today, Resurrection Sunday. Of course, and that news is that Christ has risen from the dead. And because he lives, we know that we will live even after we die. This script reminds us of our hope in Christ, and so it ends with praise to God. Christ is risen, he is risen indeed, hallelujah. But if there's anything that we've learned over the last 24 months about scripts, it's that life doesn't always follow them. Events don't always unfold according to a script, certainly not any scripts that we would ever write. And it's not just events either, is it? And we ourselves, we don't always behave and speak and think and feel according to a script, even the scripts that we do write for ourselves. And we all, we all write scripts, aren't we, don't we? Consciously or unconsciously, we all write scripts that define what is appropriate and proper, what should happen and how we should act. High school is basically just a long exercise of that, isn't it? <laughs> But everything that has happened in the last two years and everything that is still happening today, I mean, all of this has shown us how different life can be from the scripts that we write for it. And for some of us, that difference between our scripts and our lives is no clearer than on the big holidays of the year. Holidays are full of scripts, full of traditions that, while good, they do indeed tell us what to do and what to say and sometimes even what to feel. But what if, just what if, we aren't feeling what we're supposed to be feeling? And what if we can't seem to do what we're supposed to be doing? What happens when we don't fit the scripts that form our religion? Religion for its own sake really has no room for people who can't follow the script. But when our religion is rooted in relationship with Jesus, we discover a grace that makes room for us even when we feel like everything has gone off script. 
And this is beautifully captured for us in the ending of the Gospel of Mark. Like the other Gospel writers, Mark ends his Gospel with Jesus' death and resurrection, a script that many of us find familiar or even predictable. In Mark 15, Jesus is wrongfully sentenced to be crucified, to be nailed to a cross and left to die. In verse 33, Mark tells us that at noon, as Christ hung on the cross, the whole country became dark, and that this darkness lasted for three hours. In this darkness, Jesus breathed his last breath. Verse 37, then Jesus cried in a loud voice and died. In verse 40, we learn that some women were standing at a distance from the cross, watching. Some of these women were Mary Magdalene, Salome, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. James was her youngest son. These women had followed Jesus alongside the 12 disciples, and now they watched as a man named Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus' body down from the cross and buried him in a tomb. Verse 46. Joseph bought some linen cloth, took the body of Jesus down from the cross, and wrapped it in the linen. He put the body in a tomb that was cut in a wall of rock. Then he closed the tomb by rolling a very large stone to cover the entrance, presumably with the help of many. As this was happening, the women we mentioned before, they watched and they remembered the spot where Jesus was buried so that they could come back and have a proper funeral for him. You see, Jesus was buried Friday evening at the start of the weekly day of rest, the Sabbath. So the women had to wait until Sunday morning to prepare Jesus' body for his funeral. And that's exactly what Mark tells us the women did at the beginning of chapter 16. The day after the Sabbath day, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought some sweet-smelling spices to put on Jesus' body. These spices were used to cover up the smell that would have started to come off of Jesus' body, which would have presumably already been in the tomb for about 40 hours. The women wanted to get to work as soon as possible. Verse 2, very early on that day, the first day of the week, the women were on their way to the tomb. It was soon after sunrise. Now, the women had spent Saturday grieving and mourning, as you can imagine, and so even though the sun was shining that Sunday, though it had risen, they were still feeling the sadness of Jesus' death. And their sadness was mixed with frustration and hopelessness. You can hear it in their conversation as they wondered how they were even going to open Jesus' tomb. They said to each other, there is a large stone covering the entrance of the tomb. Who will move the stone for us? But when they arrived at the tomb, they saw that someone had already done what they couldn't. Verses four and five. Then the women looked and saw that the stone was already moved. The stone was very large, but it was moved away from the entrance. The women entered the tomb and saw a young man wearing a white robe. He was sitting on the right side. This young man wearing a white robe was actually an angel, and he had single-handedly rolled back the stone, sealing the tomb shut. And the women were afraid. They must have been wondering who this angel was and what he might want with them. The angel reassured the women in verse 6, saying, don't be afraid. He went on, you are looking for Jesus from Nazareth, the one who was killed on a cross. 
But Jesus has risen from death. He is not here. The angel invited the women to see for themselves. Look, here is the place they laid him. And the women saw that there was nothing there. And this emptiness pointed to the fullness of God's power to do exactly what he had promised to do, raise Jesus from the dead. The angel had a message for the women for, from God. Now go and tell his followers and Peter, Jesus is going into Galilee. He will be there before you. You will see him there as he told you before. Now, brothers and sisters, at this point, what do you think the script calls for to happen next? Whether this is your first time hearing the story or your thousandth, what is written in your internal script? What do you expect? My internal scriptwriter wants to just shout at the women, all right, ladies, do what the angel told you to do. And do it with joy. Do it with happiness. Jesus is alive. Rejoice and obey. Get to it. Let's go. Maybe your internal scriptwriter is feeling the same thing. Maybe they should team up together, write a movie or something about this. Yet, in verse 8, that script is completely flipped, isn't it? Or at the very least, it's put on pause. Rather than rejoicing, the women were confused and shaking with fear. Rather than run to the disciples, they left the tomb and ran away. And rather than boldly proclaim Jesus' resurrection, they did not tell anyone about what happened because they were afraid. The rolled away stone, the, the empty tomb, the angel, the message from God, it was, all, it was all just too much. And the women were in total shock and awe, and not just shock and awe, but deep confusion and even fear. And it's really not that hard to understand why, is it? Two days earlier, they had watched their dearest friend be tried and tortured and hung on a cross. They saw his blood pour out and his body go limp. And as the stone rolled over the entrance of his tomb, they felt it seal their fates as tightly as it seemed to seal his. But now, now they had just encountered an angel. And this angel had given them proof that the person they loved most was back from the dead and he had given them a commission from God to carry out. They were told the rules of reality had been broken, that death had been blown wide open, and a new journey into the unknown awaited them. Talk about emotional whiplash. The women, understandably, did not know what to do with all they were experiencing. They had gone into the tomb, and they had left the tomb, but they were still in the dark. It was Resurrection Sunday, but it still felt like Preparation Saturday, the day after Jesus died. The other three Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John, they tell us what happened next. Matthew tells us the women eventually began heading to the disciples so that they could share the good news. John tells us Mary Magdalene got there first and told Peter and John. Matthew tells us Jesus himself appeared to the other women and encouraged them as they made their way. And Luke tells us the women ultimately made it to the disciples and shared what they had experienced with them. So we know. We know from the other gospels 
that the women eventually worked through their confusion and fear and that they became the first to proclaim Jesus' resurrection. And we also know that Jesus appeared to the other disciples later that day and for the next many days, proving beyond a shadow of doubt that not only had he risen from the dead, but that he also loved them and that he would guide them by his spirit into all the truth they needed to understand in order to be his apostles. But what about Mark? What does Mark tell us about what happened next? Nothing. The gospel according to Mark ends with verse eight. Mark ends with paralyzing confusion, with overwhelming fear and a broken script that satisfies absolutely no one's expectations. Now you might be looking at Mark 16 or you might look at it later today and and you might wonder, what are you talking about, Eugene? There are a dozen more verses here. And they tell us what the other gospel writers tell us, that the women obeyed the command of God and everything ended happily ever after. But if you haven't noticed it already, you will also see before those verses, or maybe at the bottom of that page, a note saying something like, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. What this means is that the original manuscript, the original copy that Mark wrote himself of the Gospel of Mark, most likely ended at verse eight. The 12 or more verses that we see appearing in later copies of the Gospel of Mark were probably added by people who felt uncomfortable with the original ending. Almost as uncomfortable as it might feel for me to be preaching this sermon right now. (laughs) And it really is an uncomfortable ending, isn't it? It's so uncomfortable that some scholars have even suggested that Mark was arrested or even just died while writing Mark 16. (laughs) Mid-chapter before he could write a real ending. I gather by your laughter that you agree with me that these theories aren't very convincing. They really aren't on an academic level either. No, no, it's much more likely that Mark intentionally, intentionally, chose to end his gospel in the darkness of the women's confusion and fear. And the 12 disciples as well. I mean, let's be clear. Every follower of Christ, whether male or female, was grieving and mourning on Friday and all through Saturday and deep into Sunday, even after they had heard the news of Jesus' resurrection and seen the proof of it themselves. And Mark forces us to sit with those feelings by ending his gospel account on the words, they did not tell anyone about what happened because they were afraid. Now, brothers and sisters, this this may seem like a strange question to ask this morning of all mornings, this Easter morning, but does it today feel like Resurrection Sunday to you? Does today feel like Easter to you? A day of new life, a day of promises fulfilled, a day of future glory, breaking into the present, becoming present reality, a day so bright and full of light that it melts the shadows of everything that we've been carrying with ourselves all these months. Christ is risen, he is risen indeed, but does does it feel that way? I hope so. If so, then I am sincerely happy for you. 
and I wish you all the joy that your heart can handle. I, I do not, and neither should anyone else begrudge you your happiness. In fact, your joy in the resurrection is an essential reminder to the rest of the body that we indeed have something to celebrate. Amen? Amen. But perhaps, just perhaps, perhaps some of us this morning find our celebration mixed, mixed with darker emotions, or maybe even strangely devoid of any feelings at all. Maybe we find ourselves celebrating and yet also full of this apathy, this ambivalence that comes from being overwhelmed with all the things that we still need to process. Is that where you are this morning? One foot out of the empty tomb, but the other foot still firmly in it. Seeing light at the end of the tunnel, but still very much in the dark. Feeling like a change is coming or has already come, but not sure how to feel or what to do next. Does your Resurrection Sunday still feel like pandemic Saturday? Like a war-torn Saturday? Like economic collapse, midlife crisis, family drama, bereaved, lonely, anxious, and depressed Saturday? If that's you today, let me say to you, brothers and sisters, it's all right. It's okay to be where you are. If you feel like life has gone off script, well, you're in good company. All four gospel writers acknowledge the women's and the disciples' confusion and fear on Resurrection Sunday. But none of the gospels show any of them being rejected by God for feeling the big and complicated feelings they felt when they heard the news of Jesus' resurrection. None are rejected by God. None are given a failing grade. None are kicked out of his family, kicked out of his kingdom, certainly not the women. Rather, Jesus meets the women multiple times, even before they leave the cemetery. Knowing that they could not go on their own strength, he meets them. He meets them before they can obey. In their confusion, in their fear, he meets them and he brings them to a place of understanding and courage, not passing over their big feelings, but walking through them with them. And I think that's an important detail that we sometimes forget when we read the Easter story. The gospel does not lead us around the tomb, but it leads us through it. The gospel doesn't bypass our darkness, but it meets us in the midst of our darkness. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed, and that is good news. But as good as that news is, it doesn't immediately erase our memories of the bad news we've endured. So it's okay. It's okay to come to Resurrection Sunday feeling big and complicated feelings. It's okay for Sunday to feel like Saturday. But why is it okay? I mean, isn't it inappropriate? Doesn't it demonstrate a lack of faith? Well, maybe, perhaps, on some level. But as I read the Bible, I'm coming to see that faith is a verb. It is something we do, not something that we simply have. It's something we practice, not something that comes to us finished and settled. Faith is something we do over time, through our confusion, in the face of our fears, amid our sadness and anger and loss, and yes, even death. Faith is a journey. 
that leads us not around the tomb, not around the darkness, not around the confusion and the fear, but through all of them into eternal life. In other words, it is not faith that tells us to ignore our big, complicated feelings for the sake of following a script. It is fear that tells us to do that. The fear of our feelings, the fear that we will get stuck in our feelings, the fear that we will never stop feeling hurt or sad or weak, that if we give those feelings an inch, they'll take a mile and another one after it. This fear tells us not to step into the tomb, not to look into the darkness. And if we do anyway, this fear shames us for not feeling better, for not being okay, considering everything we ought to know by now. But faith, see, faith trusts that because the sun is risen, we can afford to face the shadows that cling to us now. Faith trusts the light at the end of the tunnel, knowing that the risen Lord can meet us in the darkness before it, that he can make even this darkness bright as noonday. And that is ultimately what Easter is about, amen? The power of God overcoming the darkness of death in raising Jesus Christ to resurrection life. The power of God and Christ overwhelming the deepest darkness of the human experience, making a way where there seemed to be no way, bringing life where there seemed to be no life, turning the most certain of defeats into the greatest of victories. What darkness is there in our lives that Jesus cannot brighten? What pain can he not heal? What loss can he not restore? What death can he not unseal? What stone can he not roll away? What life can he not live? and share and give to you and to me and what pain, what sadness, what brokenness, what confusion or fear can he not understand and embrace and sit in next to us as we slowly put the pieces together. Our Lord is a patient, generous, gracious Lord compassionate, ever willing to look into the dark with us. And he will meet us in the garden. He'll meet us in the cemetery. He'll meet us in the tomb itself in our deepest darkness. And he'll face these things with us until the light of his face fills our hearts with a death-defying peace that dances into joy and moves us forward in hope. And so brothers and sisters, the message for you today from the word is just simple. As you celebrate Christ's resurrection, remember that we were not made for the script, but the script for us. Take whatever time you need to let Jesus shine his light into every dark corner of your heart. Don't just act out the script. Put it on pause if you need. Let the day stretch out into weeks and months and even years as we allow the light of Christ to shine into those dark places and to bring us hope. Let Jesus meet you in that pause. And to put that in practice right away, I'm gonna invite the band to come back onto the stage and lead us in a song that you don't have to sing, you can just listen can just receive or even use this chance, use this song as a chance for you to maybe countenance that darkness or to countenance those feelings that sometimes we might want to push down instead of face. 
to bring them to Jesus and to allow the promise of his eternal life to speak into them, to remind you that though it's dark now, it won't always be. That this isn't, as someone put it, this isn't a cave, this is a tunnel. Um, so my wife Courtney and our three kids have been attending PBC since last May when you guys opened up after the pandemic. And I was asked to share my testimony this morning with all of you guys. Hopefully as a glimmer of hope, or actually maybe not, <laughs> given the context of our message um, that we heard today. <clears throat> I want to just start off by acknowledging that some of you have already heard uh, my story, but for purposes of keeping this testimony G-rated, I'm going to keep some of those parts out. Um, so, but if any of you guys want to know some of the explicit parts, just let me know. We can talk after service, something like that. Uh, it's, you know, appropriate for today. Anyways, my story begins like many of your stories do. It starts with my parents. My mother was an immigrant from Portugal, and my father was an immigrant from the Philippines. And like most immigrants to the U.S., they came here for the dreams of a new life and hopes for change for something better. On my mother's side, they came from a farming community, and just like the proverbial immigrant stories, they didn't even have shoes on their feet. I saw the pictures. And they moved here with nothing in their hands. And when they arrived, they came straight to San Jose and worked hard as janitors, um, feeding five children, one of which was my mother. On my father's side, my great-grandfather uh, was a World War II veteran and had citizenship when the, United, when the United States used to own the Philippines as a colony, as a territory. And um, after the war, he petitions his kids over. And then my grandfather petitions his kids over. Um, my father was one of seven. Um, and some of them even petitioning some of their spouses that were in the Philippines. And they ended up in the Central Valley and worked as migrant farm workers. And as luck would have it, both of my parents, uh, with English as their second language, met in the late 70s after my father moved to San Jose, figured out you did not need to speak English to have children or have a family, and uh, started their life together. Um, I am the firstborn of two, and if, if any of your families were like mine as the firstborn, um, there was a lot of responsibility resting on my shoulders. Now, it would, be, it would have been nice if I could say life wasn't interesting or tough, but that was hardly the case. Um, being the eldest son of an interracial, transcultural immigrant family had many of its privileges. For example, great food um, and lots and lots of big parties, um, but also had its share of unique difficulties and nuances. For example, um, because I was racially ambiguous, I had a really hard time fitting in with school. I couldn't figure out which crowd I could, I could roll with. Um, our whole family was nominal Catholic, um, but we weren't even really like Christmas and Easter Catholics. We were more like wedding and funeral Catholics. Um, but uh, we, were we were bound by uh, ritual and tradition, not by faith, um, let alone the concept of grace. And since I was physically closer to my Portuguese side of my family, I learned Portuguese. I speak it fluently, but I never learned my father's uh, mother tongue. When I was my mom's side of the family, it was very clear to me that I was different because I was always kind of checking things out and figuring out that I wasn't full Portuguese. And um, I didn't understand why they were so much more louder than my Filipino family or why they did things the way that they did. And likewise, when I was with my Filipino family, I wasn't Filipino enough there. Um, I was very outspoken compared to the rest of my cousins, got into more trouble, 
Um, and if um, you know, that's a great recipe for public shame in an Asian family. Um, if you only saw the look my father had on his face when I entered into a family gathering with um, orange hair, because I tried to dye it, I tried to bleach it, but it ended up orange, um, just should give you an indication to see a professional when you want to bleach your hair instead of doing it yourself at home with a home kit. Um, I struggled a lot with my parents because I was never enough for them. For my dad, I wasn't perfect enough and would often get judged if I didn't get an A+, oftentimes in my AP classes, but my brother would get praised for getting a B in his normal science classes. Might sound familiar to some of you guys, I'm sure. For my mom, she was really overbearing, always in my face, favoring my younger brother, and definitely suffered from what we would probably consider now uh, mental health issues. Not having any confidence in my own identity as a confused mixed kid um, that couldn't fit in, um, I went and found people that I thought I could fit in with. I got involved with the wrong groups, snuck out of my parents' house regularly, which um, for those of you who have strong-willed children like myself, I would say don't put that strong-willed child in the front of the house where they can easily access the window to get out of the house when you could keep that in the backyard. That's just giving you guys some, some advice. Um, I got really good at climbing out the window. Uh, <laughs> I got involved with the party scene and got involved with a lot of things that would have either put me in jail or taken my life. And I thank God to this day that none of that happened or else I wouldn't be here sharing my, my story with you. It wasn't before long that I ended up kicked out of my parents' house uh, and living on my own, homeless um, in, on the streets of Long Beach panhandling for money, and after effective street preaching and drive-by evangelism, which as an evangelist, I would like to tell you drive-by evangelism isn't for all, um, <laughs> in desperation while I was on the street, I did find Jesus, or in the way that I realized it too, that Jesus found me. I distinctly remember one of the first things I experienced was being compelled by God to call my parents to reconcile with them. Well, I did call them. And I remember pouring my heart to them, asking for forgiveness, for being a snot-nosed, disrespectful, uh, blonde-haired, bleaching child. All of those things, um, almost somewhat to what you would uh, experience if you uh, remember reading the uh, parable of the, the prodigal son. One big happy ending, right? All is well, I'm back in the fold of the family. Well, if you guys know your parable, unlike the father in that parable who, if we remember Jesus' teaching, was supposed to be a representation of God the Father, my parents didn't stop me from giving my prepared speech or confession. And in fact, my parents, being far from God, didn't actually um, accept my confession and apology. And so while there was an appearance of forgiveness and reconciliation, there never really was one. In fact, very soon after I had moved back in with my parents, um, they became really controlling. And if there was any sort of questioning of why they wanted me to do something or not do something, for example, why was I going to church all of a sudden every Sunday? Why did I have to go to a Bible study? Why was I giving money to the church? Um, they would say stuff like, see, you're the same disrespectful, disobedient guy you were from before. You're no different, and you call yourself a Christian. Was I really the same person as I was before? Or was I being gaslighted into thinking something different from reality? Or was it that my family was, for all intents and purposes, trying to get me to worship them over worshiping the God that I believed 
had died and come back to life just for me. I understood that God had forgiven me and absolved me from my sins when I confessed them to him, but why wouldn't my parents? Years later had gone by and the relationship with my parents got worse and worse. And because of that, I decided to grow my family relationships not by blood, but by the blood of Jesus, by plunging my life into church. Got involved on the worship team, became a worship pastor at some point, regular Bible studies, I even had a calling to go into ministry, which you guys may have heard about already. Uh, went to seminary for about a year. Um, worked with a church plant. I even found a wife. Um, I wouldn't have to be affirmed by my parents just to give, get affirmed by the church and your friends, and you'll be fine. Except for when it came to me leading worship, my mother would call me in the middle of mid-guitar strum or mid-piano playing blowing up my phone in the middle of the service, knowing well that I was the worship leader. You shouldn't go to church, you should just come to my house. Why do you need to do that every day? Well, mom, it was my job, <laughs> but that didn't matter. When it came to our wedding, they told me to take our invite and shove it. My mother going as far as to say they knew that I was a liar and a terrible person and that I've got my wife fooled. When we had our firstborn, she verbally attacked her, and out of a desire to protect her and any other kids we would have, we'd never let my parents meet them. We're still on no speaking terms today. Maybe you're thinking, well, that's okay, now you have the church, right? Well, no, unfortunately, that's not the case. Um, as some of you may or may not know, um, the pandemic and the year, a couple of years of civil unrest were, were devastating to many people. It was devastating for us. And over that course of the last few years, it was so bad uh, with some experience with people within our church family that um, we had to leave. And it made us feel like we were actually dealing with my, our own biological family. We felt gaslighted. We questioned our theology. We questioned whether or not we were genuine Christians. Wondered if we were even evangelical enough. Uh, to be a part of the body anywhere in the Silicon Valley. And luckily for us, uh, God didn't let us just stay in that, wandering for too long. Uh, we were encouraged over the course of the pandemic to consider uh, attending um, PBCC, and uh, we did not want to, but um, clearly God had other plans in the script, as you heard with script writing. And right now we're in a time of rest uh, with our family, just trying to be a part of the family and just getting ministered to and hopefully trying to figure out what it looks like to be a part of the family here. Now, you may be asking yourself, what the heck does this have to do with the Easter story, or what does this have to do with Eugene's sermon? And hopefully you've heard points of tension in my story that highlight and align with the scripture that we read in Mark, how it ends at, at verse 8. What we oftentimes hear in Christian circles called the already but not yet. <clears throat> this space between the crucifixion <clears throat> excuse me, and seeing Jesus in the flesh. Or now, for those of us on this side of the resurrection, the waiting for Jesus to return, right? The reality is that I feel like God allows me and all of us to live in that space of tension on a daily basis. On one hand, we know that the work of the cross is absolutely finished. We should be able to turn to God and celebrate, not feel condemnation, not feel shame, in light of Jesus' work, but we can't celebrate without this space of waiting. 
We recognize that Jesus' prayer of on earth as is in heaven is still not here. Even though we know the ending, we know quite well the ending in, in Revelation that Jesus will return and he's clearly not here yet as we hear of rumors of wars and earthquakes and all the suffering that we hear in the world. And so because of that, as I experience my personal suffering, as I experience the suffering of the world, I realize that um, my hope can't be necessarily in um, what the world has for me, even uh, um, a family um, within the body of Christ or even a worldly family by, by DNA blood. But I have a hope that one day we will be in the ultimate heavenly family through a shared covenant faith. Um, and because of that, there can be space for us to feel unresolved, space for us to feel sometimes in distrust, surprise, lament, that feels like it's going on for way too long. And specifically, to or, in order to fully understand how Jesus himself, only Jesus, can turn mourning into dancing. What I would like to do right now, before we go into communion, is to pray for us as a church. Now, traditionally, when someone comes up, they, you, you guys like to pray over me, but I think it's, in a, it's, it's, it's not appropriate because I really do think this is God's day. You guys can pray for me after service. It's fine. <laughs> But um, I really want to pray for us right now, before we go into communion, for us to consider laying um, at the feet of Jesus any sense of feeling that we're not enough, any sort of feeling of this lament, any feeling of tension, lay it before the cross. And lay, across, lay, lay aside any feeling that we have to fake it as Christians. We do not have to do that. The, the women at the tomb, they were surprised. They were scared, they were worried. If you are surprised, if you are afraid, if you are worried, that is okay to feel. Because you don't just focus on one part of the gospel. You, feel, you focus on all of the gospel that takes us from Good Friday, where Jesus died, to Silent Saturday, where we waited, to Resurrection Sunday, when we realize that he is alive. That is the full gospel. Any isolation of one part of it only and focusing on one part of it, that's not the full gospel. There's a reason why Jesus did not come back to life that Friday. And we all know in his power, he could have done it, but he chose not to. He chose to have us wait. He chose to have us live in that tension. And he chose, us, he chose to tell us that there is space for those things. So if you go ahead and bow your heads with me, I'm gonna go ahead and say a little prayer for us this service. <clears throat> Father God, you are amazing. You are wonderful. You are kind. We can't even begin to realize or fathom the plans or the script that you have for us in our lives. We can think we have it scripted, but we don't. And the reality is, is that even though we know there's a happy ending to the end of our script, that might not be the case for any of us here. It might be the case for some of us, but it not, might not be the case for all of us here. Lord, we surrender that tension to you. We surrender the, the, the longing. We surrender the lament. We surrender those areas that we want to be faithless to give into your faith. We pray that you would send us the Holy Spirit to strengthen us in our faith, to strengthen us in light of the fact that we know 
that you are coming back again, that we would wait on that blessed hope for when you do return. And God, for those of us here that don't feel we have enough strength, God, I just pray that the rest of the church family here can be a testimony to that. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, if you'd like to receive prayer, there will be some up here to receive you. But receive now this benediction in the Lord. As you go from this place, may the God of all life and light in grace and kindness find every dark corner of your heart and flood it full with his grace and compassion, patience and mercy until you find yourself whole in the resurrection life of God. May this stretch from today to tomorrow to the weeks and the months and the years to come until we find ourselves home in the kingdom of God. God bless you. Be well.